Let's pray now. We're going to be in the book of uh, Acts today, but let's pray before our time together. Father, we are appreciative of being able to gather. Lord, uh, we pray for our friends that are home online, whether you've been working in them, even um, apart from the physical fellowship with others, Lord. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather and consider your word. We thank you for the sweet time of worship, Lord, not only that we were able to enjoy, but that we were able to bring to you. We pray that you were blessed. We pray that you were honored. Lord, amazingly, as we, we come together to, to sing songs to you, it doesn't work within us. It draws us into your presence. It, it, in a sense, it feels like it restores us to the place that we were created to be in, giving you the glory that you deserve. And, and Lord, that's our desire. And now we come to your word because we believe that your voice deserves to be heard more than all the other voices. And we believe that your word is truth. And so we pray that you would take an account that's 2,000 years old, but you would apply it into our lives here uh, a couple thousand years later. And you'd bless your living and active word this morning once more as you always do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, go ahead, if you haven't, turn to Acts 18. If, you're, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in front of you in the seats. Most of the seats, you can find one. If you're not right in front of you, one to the left or right. And we also include up there on the screen the page number if you're not as familiar with your Bible. But we are in the book of Acts. We've been working our way through the book of Acts. And we come now to the 18th chapter. And we find ourselves just about at the end of Paul's, the apostle Paul's, second missionary journey. Before we get to 18, it's about halfway through. As we start coming to the end of 18, that's when it's going to end. So Paul traveled all around for about a year and a half to various places, and then he spent about a year and a half in the city of Corinth. And we began our look at that last time, but we remember some of the places Paul has been to. He's been to Philippi. You remember the name. We have a book to the Philippians. He's been to Thessalonica. He's been to a town called Berea, and for a short time he was in that city of Athens, and now he has come to the city of Corinth. And as it's going to tell us a little bit later in our passage today, he'll spend 18 months in the city of Corinth, a year and a half. And Corinth, as you may remember, was a rough place. It was a place that had developed a reputation. It was known, it probably had a little ward somewhere, as the most immoral city in the world. The term Corinthian became synonymous with immorality and sin. And this is where Paul decided, I'm going to go and I'm going to set up shop. I'm going to stay here for a year and a half trying to reach the people of this particular town. People that a lot of people might look at and say, well, they're not going to be interested. And he found that there was a thriving church waiting to be reborn in that particular community. You may recall that in God's grace, he gave Paul a gift, two people actually, the gifts of Priscilla and Aquila. And they would go on to become partners with Paul in the ministry. And maybe even more significantly, they'd go on to become lifelong friends of the apostle and, in a, and a support to the apostle. I reminded you last week that toward uh, the beginning of his time there, or sometime during his time there, that Timothy and Silas, his partners, who had stayed back in the city of Berea, they had finally made it to the apostle Paul as well. And so you have Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, Silas, and the Apostle Paul, five, a team, we're going to reach this city, or we're going to do our very best to reach this particular city, the city of Corinth. 
Paul's typical method, where would he go first if he could? He would go to a synagogue. And so we saw that. Look at verse 4. It said, and he reasoned in the synagogue. I bet you there's not a lot of churches that know that answer. So praise the Lord for you guys. Uh, heading, uh, it says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. That was sort of his method. That was where he would go first. Even in that one city where there was no synagogue, he went to the place the Jews would gather to the river's edge. And he would begin to speak to them there. Look at verse 5 in chapter 18. It tells us he began to testify to them, to the Jews, that the Christ was Jesus. He would open up the Old Testament scriptures to them. He would explain to them this is what God had intended for thousands of years before and told us about thousands of years before, testifying to the Jews that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. And if his time in any of the other cities is any indicator, he had some success, that there would, would be some Jews that would be responding and saying, you know what, this all makes sense. I'm in. I believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Unfortunately, as we've seen and we're going to see today, as is often the case, there were those that refused to be persuaded. There were those that sat there and said, look, I don't care what you say. I don't care how you say it. I don't care how convincing it is. I'm not going to agree. I refuse to be persuaded. There were those, as it says in the passage, that opposed the Apostle Paul, and particularly the fact that there were some that were following him or listening to him or being persuaded by him. And so they began to oppose Paul. They began to revile Paul. Older versions say they began to blaspheme Paul. Speak out against him. Don't listen to that guy. You know what these people are like. And badmouth the Apostle Paul. We look at verse 6. It says, and when they opposed him and they reviled him. Now Paul's response to that was simply to shake out his garments. Which is, kind of sounds weird. But simply to say, you know what? You don't want to buy in, that's fine. Other versions will say, other places will say something like, he shook the dust off his feet. And I, what I compared that to or explained that as, he rejected their rejection. If you're not interested, I get it, that's fine. It's not going to be fine for you, but I get it. But I'm not going to quit what it is that God called me to do. And so if you're not interested, well, then I'll go to that guy, and maybe he will. And if he's not, then I'll go to that guy, and perhaps he will be interested. And, and Paul does that, because Paul recognizes and realizes that there was no time to waste, that we're talking about eternal things, the eternal state of the people that's in front of them, their souls. And so if these people aren't interested in dealing with that, Paul's going to go to those that were. And as we'll see, it was the Gentiles. Paul doesn't have to go very far. Look, verse 7, he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, who was a worshiper of God. Notice, his house was next door to the synagogue. He didn't go very far at all. Get out of here. We don't want you here. Okay, fine. He went right next door to that particular house that was there. And there was a fellow there. His name is, as you see, Titius Justus. He's referred to as a worshiper of God. We've seen in the book of Acts a number of similar terms to describe the same group of people. And so in Acts chapter 13, we learned of the devout women of high standing. They lived in the, the city of Antioch, Pisidia. In Acts chapter 10, verse 22, we learned about the upright and God-fearing centurion. You may remember him. 
In Acts 17.4, we learned about the devout Greeks of Thessalonica. And in Acts 17.17, the devout persons of Athens. And here now we learn about a worshiper of God in the city of Corinth. And so the devout women, the God-fearing centurion, the devout Greeks, the devout persons, the worshiper of God, they're all referring to the same type of person. They're all referring to a Gentile that has either come to the faith or was beginning to come to the realization that their false gods were just that, that they were false, that there was no hope in them, there was nothing real about them, and they began to look to the God of the Jews, Jehovah, and they became devout. They weren't Jews, they were Gentiles, but they became God-fearing Gentiles, devout Gentiles, as it says here of this man, a worshiper of God. A Gentile searching for more than that which is false religion, or religions as many of them uh, were, had to offer. And this man's search, Titius Justice, it brought him to the Jewish faith. But even that seemed to come short for him. Even as he joined this very, very different movement, the Jewish movement here, and he came into the synagogue very different from the Roman ways around him and their false religions, even that fell short for him. And so as the Apostle Paul began to go into that synagogue and began to teach, this man began to be stirred, begun to be stirred. God was doing a work within him. He was thinking deeply about the things that Paul was presenting. Remember, it, Paul, it said of Paul that he went in, and it didn't, doesn't say that he went and lectured to them. He went in and he dialogued with them. He reasoned with them. He explained things. He answered their objections. And this guy, either participating or simply observing, is buying into this. This makes sense to me. I get it. Now we have the scene where Paul is thrown out of the, the uh, synagogue, or politely asked to leave one way or another, to get out of the synagogue. And this guy says, well, if he's leaving, that's really the reason I've been coming. So if he's leaving, I'm going where he is going. If you look at verse 7, it says he was a worshiper of God and that his house was next door to the synagogue. I have a little picture in my mind of how this went down, that there's a little bit of a blow up and the synagogue rulers and leaders say, you know what, that's it, buddy, you get out of here. And so Paul says, you, you want me to get out of here? Yes, we want you to get out of here. Well, then I will get out of here and I'm going to, and you know, the shake the dust thing. And Paul goes out and a group of people go out with the apostle Paul. Now they're standing out in the street and they're thinking, look, man, we still want to hear you teach. I know, but it's cold and it might rain today. What are we going to do? And the guy says, well, look, here's my house here. My wife, she just vacuumed. You know, why don't you come into the living room? My husband just vacuumed, just to make sure. Why don't you come into the living room? Why don't you teach us here? Why don't we gather here? And there they are in the, the building, the, the house right next door to the synagogue. And there the Apostle Paul begins to teach whoever it is that will come. I have to imagine the synagogue rulers were delighted that the Apostle Paul chose to continue teaching and specifically to teach right here next door to the synagogue. But they were opposed. They would not be persuaded. They weren't interested in what Paul was saying, and so they drove Paul out. But notice this about verse 8. Not all of the Jewish leaders opposed the Apostle Paul. Many of them did. As a group, they did. But there were some that were also persuaded. And so it says there in verse 8, there was a man by the name of Crispus. He was the ruler of the synagogue. He believed in the Lord together with his entire household. 
And it goes on. It says, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized, which we'll come to. But let's look at this fellow Crispus. I admire Crispus for a couple of reasons. Number one, his name reminds me of a children's cereal. And who doesn't like a nice sugary cereal? So that's one reason. But the other reason, perhaps a little more significant, look at his courage. He's the ruler of the synagogue, and he has the courage to follow his convictions. As the ruler of the synagogue, to decide to follow Jesus, he was risking everything to do so, to follow the Lord and Paul's teachings about the Lord. Truth be told, he was doing more than just risking everything. He was giving up everything to follow Jesus. So this man, he has the courage of his convictions. His decision to go where the evidence was leading meant his rejection at the hands of the synagogue authorities. And in his case, it likely meant the loss of a job, and it possibly even meant the loss of a residence, as sometimes the rule of the synagogue's residence was provided by the synagogue or a portion of the synagogue. And so what is happening next door to this synagogue at Titius's house was so irresistible, so undeniable to this man that even though he was the ruler of the synagogue, he had to go where the evidence was taking him. He had to become a follower of Christ. Many in our society are afraid to do that. Many of us are afraid to do that. We've allowed ourselves to get comfortable in what is safe and to avoid making any decisions that are going to challenge that safety and that comfort. And so things that we know to be true, we are willing to reject or ignore, lest our stand upset the order and the flow of things in the little world in which we live. And the result then becomes we begin to believe a lie, or at least to live as if we believe a lie, other than take our stand and deal with the consequences that may and likely will come. This man stood by the courage of his convictions, and he went where the evidence led him. In Matthew chapter 16, we read the account of Jesus and his disciples, and they're in sort of a, a contentious interaction with the religious leaders. They're called the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the text. And the interaction, the conversation, the argument is clearly tense. You just pick it up as soon as you start reading that particular passage. And they're challenging Jesus, and Jesus in turn is challenging them and they go through their little thing. And then after that is over, as Jesus is with his disciples, after the contention, Jesus says to his disciples this thing. He challenges them. This is Matthew 16. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul. Crispus understood that. Crispus understood that he needed to take his stand regardless of what the consequences might be. And he understood that the well-being of his soul far surpassed any earthly comforts that this world could bring to him. And so when the evidence led a particular direction, he was going to go to that particular place regardless of what the consequences might be. He heard Paul's teaching and he knew that the consequences, be what they may, he had to continue to listen. 
And as 18.8 goes on to say, he went on to believe. Now, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Crispus was one of the few individuals in the city of Corinth that the Apostle Paul actually baptized. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, referring to this particular fellow. Now, Paul's not saying there, like, I hate baptisms. But Paul wasn't about baptisms. He wasn't running around trying to baptize all kinds of people. He was preaching the gospel. People were still getting baptized in that, in that community. And in the Acts chapter, or excuse me, the First Corinthians chapter 1 passage, there's this big thing about who do you belong to? Who led you? Who baptized you? And that's why Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Well, I did that guy and this guy. Oh, yeah, and that guy. And he names another one. But for Paul, it wasn't about baptism. That being said, one of the people that he baptized was this fellow by the name of Crispus, this former ruler of the synagogue who left that world behind when they refused to receive Christ, and he went where the evidence led him. Verse 8, notice it also points out that in addition to Crispus, it says, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed, and they were baptized. Knowing what we know about Corinth, as I introduced at the beginning of our time today, Corinth was a pagan city. And so this uh, many Corinthians that are believing, these are pagans that have come to know the Lord. People like Crispus, who was probably an upstanding individual in his society, but many, many pagans as well. Gentiles that were given over to sin in a city that was given over to sin. And I asked you this week, how many of you did it to read 1 Corinthians? Just put your hand up, it doesn't matter. Look at all the kids. Yep, right there, 10 points for you and you. Very good. All right. It, maybe, I've already read it. You're thinking, okay, good. You've already read it. Maybe you remember this. These are some of the folks that are being talked about when it says many of the Corinthians believed. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul would write this to them a little later. And he would say this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then notice verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One of the most fun experiences I had in serving the Lord, and there's been a lot, obviously, as you probably have enjoyed as well, but I was on a mission trip in Belize, and one of the young ladies on the trip, I think I've told this story, one of the young ladies on the trip was sharing her testimony during a church service, her story of where she had come from, what God had done in her life. And I knew this young lady well, but I didn't know her story. This lady actually lived at our home with my wife and I and our kids. She lived there, so I knew her pretty well. Uh, we have dinner together and stuff like that. And now she's telling her story about where she had been, what God had done to her, and now where she is at. And I was blown away. I was blown away because I couldn't imagine this girl that has been sanct, woman that has been sanctified by the Lord, being the type of person that she had been describing. 
I'm reminded of that when I look at this passage. And such were some of you. The changing work that God had done in the lives of these Corinthians, Paul says there. Another place, also in that same book, 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, consider your calling, brothers. That means where you've come from. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Amen? I think of that when I look. No, I'm kidding. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. That's the people that Paul was ministering to and reaching in the city of Corinth. They were not the wise of the world, the powerful of the world, the noble of the world. Rather, what he says is, they were the ones that the world considers to be foolish, weak, low, and despised. They were not the good of the community, the wholesome of the community, the churchgoers of the community. They were the sexually immoral. They were the idolaters. They were the adulterers. They were those who practiced homosexuality. They were those that were thieves and drunkards and swindlers. They're the people that Paul was ministering to there in the city of Corinth. And they were the folks that were responding to the message of the gospel. And truth be told, they're the folks that often do respond to the message of the gospel because they're the ones that know they have a need. And the place of salvation must always begin with one's realization that they need salvation. And so if one is wise or strong or powerful or lifted up in this society in which we live, it's rare that that person ever stops to see their need for something more. They have everything they need. Why look outside of themselves? There are, however, some that do. There's a story that is told of a woman named Selina Shirley. She was a 1700s countess of Huntington, England. Selina was a woman of nobility in 18th century England. And she used to say that her favorite letter in the English language was the letter M. And that she regularly thanked God for the letter M. And the reason why, because 1 Corinthians 1.26, it doesn't say not any noble were called to the faith. Rather, what it says is not many noble were called to the faith. And she considered herself as a member of the nobility, one of the fortunate few nobles that had been called. She was one of the rare individuals that pretty much had everything this world has to offer and yet realized that what she truly needed was that which money and power and prestige could not buy. And that is right standing with God. And that can only come through faith in the work of God's Son. And so here in the city of Corinth, God was beginning to bless the missionary activity of those five individuals that I pointed out to you earlier. It had been a slow start, but the word of God was beginning to have its effect. The Holy Spirit was blessing. And the men and women one here, a couple over there, a few more over there, the men and women of that community were beginning to place their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ. And what's interesting, look at verse 9. There's an amazing change of direction. 
you almost might expect verse 9 to say, and man, Paul was fired up. He was excited. Paul was enthused. He was motivated. Man, he really went at it then. Once he saw that, it was beginning to work and people were responding. But if you look at verse 9, it changes direction. And it says, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. You, you would expect it to say, now Paul, cool your jets a little. I know you're excited. Just keep doing, you know, you might expect that. But instead here it says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them. Now the text here doesn't come out and say, but you have to wonder if Paul began to see the success he was having, that people in the community were responding, and that he began to get a little bit concerned. Every time people begin to respond in a community, the religious leaders or the civil leaders, they begin to get upset, and pretty soon rocks start flying at me, and batons start getting swung at me, and you begin to wonder if the Apostle Paul began to fear those things. That's been his experience in the other cities that he was in. It was his experience in Antioch, Pisidia, 13, in chapter 13. His experience in Iconium, in chapter 14. In Lystra, in chapter 14. In Philippi, in chapter 16. And if he had stuck around long enough, it would have been his experience in Thessalonica and Berea. Just about every city that the apostle went to, it ended up with him getting either screamed at, yelled at, beaten, stoned, thrown in prison. And you get the sense that it's based on those past experience that Paul gets inside of his head a little bit and he begins to convince himself that trouble is not too far away. And Paul doesn't want trouble. He's tired of trouble. He's fearful of it. And it's then that the Lord comes through a vision, as it says in the passage, that the Lord comes through a vision in the night and he begins to minister to the apostle during that time of turmoil. He says to him, Paul, don't be afraid. You'll notice there he encourages him to continue speaking. See how he lets him know, look, there's many in this city. The idea being that yet believe, but that they're going to believe because of the work that you're doing here. Paul, don't stop. Don't give up the work. Now, we know that the Lord doesn't, just, doesn't say things just to say things. Do we all agree with that premise? And just, you know, not talk. he's not one of those people just talking like, okay, let's have some quiet time, you know, or whatever. The Lord says what he says because it needs to be said. And so if he tells Paul not to be afraid, that must be because Paul was afraid. And if he tells Paul not to stop speaking, that's probably because Paul was thinking he might stop speaking. If he tells him, I am with you, then I think we can guess that that might mean that Paul was beginning to wonder, where is the Lord? God, are you with me in this? Will you continue to be with me in this when they start throwing the stones? And finally, if he tells him that there are many in this city, that causes me to wonder if Paul was beginning to think things like, what's the use? What kind of an impact am I really having on this community? Yeah, I know I reached this guy and that guy, but I'm not really having this impact. And the Lord says, look, there are many in this city. The Lord says, don't be afraid, don't stop, I am with you, keep doing what you're doing. The work is beginning to have its effect. Now before noticing, moving on, 
Notice this about the Lord. The Lord sees Paul's heart and he ministers to his need. And I think that's really, really important for us to take notice. The Lord sees his heart and he ministers to his need. How unlike so many of our earthly leaders, how unlike, sadly, so many of our church leaders that we interact with, that will drive and drive and drive a person until they collapse and then move on to the next person that they can drive and drive and drive to accomplish what it is they want to accomplish for their particular life. But as we see here, the Lord cares for his servant Paul, just as he cares for every one of us. He ministers to the apostles' needs. He brings him peace and encouragement and an exhortation to continue on when the temptation was rising in Paul to give up. Notice this. He doesn't scold Paul for struggling with fear. He doesn't say, what kind of an apostle are you? I picked the wrong one here. I need men that will stand up and be strong. He didn't say that junk to Paul. He ministers to Paul. He doesn't beat him up for having doubts. He comes to the place that Paul is, the place of struggle, and with care he ministers to him. I hope you are aware that that's the way that the Lord treats you and loves you and desires to minister to you because you're going to have your struggles. I have my struggles. We all do. Sometimes it's a bad attitude. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's wanting to give up. Sometimes it's like, what's the use? Why bother doing what it is that God is calling me to do? What kind of an impact am I having? And a lot of us, we think, you know, if I got honest with God in prayer about this, he'd yell at me. He'd scold me. He already knows, first off. But please know that he comes alongside of you. He sits next to you. He encourages you. He exhorts you. Don't be afraid. I'm still with you. I will be with you in all of this. You can do this. Look how far you've already come. He ministers to his needs. So I hope you know, every one of us, that that's how the Lord deals with you. And may I also say, I hope that's the way you deal with people that you minister to and people that you care for. I hope you minister in the same mercy that the Lord shows you. Second thing that I want to notice, take notice about this here is Paul is going through, remember I said he got in his head? He's kind of going through this struggle, this doubt, maybe I should just give up, what kind of effect am I having, and so on. Notice this, though, about the Apostle Paul. He's still in the game. Paul had been persecuted and driven out of Pisidia. He was nearly stoned in Iconium. He was actually stoned in Lystra. And on top of that, there were another four or five similar circumstances that he dealt with. And yet, Paul is still in the game. He's still ministering and he's still persevering. I like that about the Apostle Paul. I, I might ask the question, why? Why are you still in the game? Why not just give up, Paul? Is it really worth all this trouble that you're going through? You know you're going to heaven. Why not go find a nice place to live and work on your couple of neighbors there? Why, why bring all this upon yourself? Is it really worth it? If somebody did ask Paul that question, his answer, absolutely. Yes, it is. I want to quote again at length from Paul's writing back to these believers in Corinth. This is from the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul would write these things to them in the fourth chapter. He would say this, We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, 
but we're not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. The point there being, yeah, we are at the edge of death where we may be killed for this, but it's having the effect of bringing eternal life to the people that we're ministering to. Paul goes on a little bit later in that passage. He says, and so we do not lose heart. Now, a lot of us would have lost heart with all those things there, right? Paul says, and so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Just like the passage in Acts chapter 18, where the Lord came and ministered to him, and he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. There's many in this city. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen, they're transient. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen, those are eternal. For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home, if this body is destroyed, that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens. And then a little bit later in that section there, Paul wraps it all up. These are the words he says, for the love of Christ compels us. For the love of Christ compels us. And so despite all the opposition and the persecution and the physical threats and even the internal fear, Paul persevered because the love of Christ compelled him to persevere. His love for Christ, certainly, but most importantly or more importantly, because of Christ's love for him and for the people of that particular community that he was trying to minister to. Because God loved them so, Paul says, I'll put up with all that stuff. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Yes. That I might win some to the faith. Now, as we say this, I imagine some of you are thinking, oh, how about that, Paul? And I would imagine most of us here, all of us here probably, are not facing persecution and hardship, certainly not to the degree, the degree that the Apostle Paul was, but you are probably facing something that has you wondering whether it's all worth it and whether you should just kind of give up or whether you should just give up or not. And so for some of us, maybe it's a challenging work situation and you think, you know, I'm just going to quit this job or I'm just going to get out of here or this or that. Perhaps it's turmoil in a particular relationship that you have and you're wondering, you know, it'd just be a whole lot easier if I pack my bags and I get out of here. Maybe it's the frustrations of trying to minister to someone, trying to reach a family member, a neighbor, a coworker. They don't seem to be responding, and I'm just banging my head against the wall. I'm never going to talk to that guy again. And you want to just throw in the towel. You know your circumstance. I can't name everything. I'm not that creative to think of everything. But I will say this. Allow Jesus' words to Paul 
to be a word of encouragement to you. Don't stop. I am with you. I will accomplish my purposes in this city. That's what, God, that's what Jesus told the apostle there. A lot of people never see the fruit in their life because they give up before the fruit is actually produced. And I was thinking about when I was younger. I'll tell you this in a moment. Suspense. And growing up on a farm and all that, working on a farm. And sometime in March or whatever, you begin to do all the hard work of getting the fields ready and plowing the fields and doing all that stuff and bringing all that you need and that. And then you begin to plant it. And then nothing happens. And nothing happens and nothing happens. And you go out there in April and you go down in late April and early May and there's still nothing. And you think, what a waste. I wasted all that time. And you pick up and you move on to something else. And then the guy who moved into your house and your farm, he gets the benefit of all your hard work. You see where I'm going with that? And a lot of people, they, they persevere, they persevere, they persevere, ah, nothing. And they leave too early before the fruit has time to be produced. Reaping the harvest takes the investment of time. And that's why the Apostle Paul will go on to remain in the city of Corinth for a year and a half, it says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them. That's the longest he will stay, at least up to this point. Uh, he'll stay a similar length of time in future chapters in the city of Ephesus. But it's the longest he would stay in a particular community there, pouring into their lives. Notice what he did while he was there. It says in verse 11, he was teaching the word of God among them. The very thing that the Lord had told him to do, don't stop serving the poor. Don't stop being nice to people. Don't stop having coat drives. He said, don't stop speaking. Don't stop teaching the people the word of God. Because the teaching of the word of God was going to ground them and teach them, you need to have a coat drive for the poor. And you need to do this thing for that. But teaching the word of God. And that's what Paul did. He grounded them in the faith, and he established for them a firm foundation. Now the passage goes on. Look at verse 12. It says, Now, but when Galleon was proconsul of Achaia, I don't even know how to say that place, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him before the tribunal. This is what Paul feared, remember? Saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galleon said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galleon paid no attention to these things, to any of this. Now, you remember, we've seen the word proconsul in our study of Acts. The proconsul was kind of like uh, the governor of the region. Here, he also seems to be a judge in, in some sorts as well. And this particular proconsul was a man by the name of Galleon. Now, as I read it, I was saying over and over this week, Galileo. And it's not Galileo. He was in like the 1800s or, I don't know, 1200s. Some of you probably know. He was an astronomer. That's not the guy we're talking about. This guy, his name, it's actually pronounced Gal Leon or something to that effect. 
He came into power, we know this historically, he came into power around the year 52 AD, which we estimate coincides with sort of that last year, uh, eight, nine months of Paul's ministry there in the city of Corinth. And so I bring it up because it seems what is happening here is that the people of the city are stirring up trouble against the Apostle Paul and that they're doing so just as this guy is coming into power. It's as if they're thinking, well, we got this new guy here and we could put a lot of pressure on him and get him to do what it is that we want him to do. And so verse 12 says, but when Galion was proconsul of the, the area, the region, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. And their accusation was, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. That's their accusation against him, that, he is to worship, that he's trying to get people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, the law that they meant was their own law. But there's sort of this subtle implication that, law, that Paul is a general lawbreaker, even of the Roman laws here. And I say that because the Romans didn't care what God you worshipped. It was a little bit later on. They said, just bow the knee to Caesar. You can worship any other god that you want to. And so they didn't really care about multiple gods. They had thousands of them in some of their cities. But these guys here say, no, he is violating our law. And their plan is to unite against the apostle to bring such a large number of people into that tribunal that maybe the new governor, proconsul, will be intimidated. And maybe he'll just say, well what, well, what would you have me do? And soon the people there are leading. I imagine Paul was thinking here, well, here we go again. And just as he stood, just as it says in the verse, he was about to open his mouth. He was about to defend himself. He was about to debunk their arguments against him. It tells us in verse 14 that Galleon says to the Jews, he interrupts everybody, he says, look, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, then I'd have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about your law, I'm not interested in being a judge of it. I, I refuse to be a judge of these things. He cuts everybody off here. It seems almost that he's a little ticked off by this, that he sees through what it is they're trying to do. I see what you're trying to do. You think you're going to take advantage of the new guy? I've been around the block. You're not going to take advantage of me. And so he correctly determines that this was a religious matter and not a civil matter. And he has no interest in playing their little game here. What he sees here, what he models for us, what he demonstrates for us, is that while government does have a role in matters of wrongdoing, it does not have a role in determining the right and wrong of religious matters. And this guy here, he has no interest in weighing in on such a matter. And so he dismisses it altogether. Notice verse 16, it says he drives them from the tribunal. Verse 15 goes, or 17 goes on to say, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal, but the proconsul paid no attention to the matter. A few things they need explanation. First off, they beat this guy, Sosthenes. Notice he's called the ruler of the synagogue. If you look back to verse 8 for a second, Crispus had been called the ruler of the synagogue. Doesn't tell us, but I imagine Crispus got fired when he started going to Paul's little meetings at the place next door. 
And so this guy Sosthenes comes along. He becomes the new ruler of the synagogue. Second thing that we take notice in those couple of verses is that this group begins to beat Sosthenes. Now, there are differing understandings of who this group is that's doing the beating. Some of our older versions, they will tell us that it's the Greeks. King James, I think, calls them the Greeks or the Gentiles. Some of the more modern versions, they seem to think that it is the, uh, the Jews that are actually beating their ruler of the synagogue. The confusion comes because in the original, it says, and they began to beat Sosthenes. And so the older versions think it's referring to the Greeks. How dare, why are you wasting our time? Get out of here. I'm going to beat you while you go. And then others think it's the Jews that are thinking, what kind of a ruler of the synagogue are you? That's how you're going to represent us in front of them? You know what? Why don't we beat you? I don't think Sosthenes cares who it's beating him. <laughs> He's getting beaten here in front of it. Which brings me to the third point, And that is that Gal- Galleon is wrong in doing nothing. And so he was right earlier to do nothing and to not get involved in this particular case. But here now he's wrong in not intervening and stopping the beating of this man, Sosthenes. So he can be commended in the one case, but he should be criticized in this particular case. He should have intervened and protected this man, but he did not. One final verse, look at verse 18. It says, now after this, Paul stayed many days longer And then he took leave of the brothers, the Christians there, and he set sail for Syria, and with him went Priscilla and Aquila. So who didn't go with him? Silas and Timothy. He left them behind, it seems, as he had in Berea, and he left Luke behind in Philippi to continue to teach the people. But Paul here leaves Corinth. This is one of the few cities where Paul was not forced to leave the city. He wasn't chased out of the city. And after being there a year and a half, feeling that they were where they needed to be, grounded, and leaving behind Silas and Timothy, he moves on and he begins to head, as it says there, he sets sail for Syria. Remember, the home church that Paul came from was Antioch of Syria. And so this is it. This is the end of the missionary journey. They're going to make their way back home after three years on the road here. They're going to head back, and he's going to head back with, as we learned, Priscilla and Aquila, his new friends and his new ministry partners. And so think about this entire missionary journey. I think we've looked at it for five weeks or so, and you think about it. Paul had gone out, chapter 15, verse 40, he had gone out not really knowing where he was going. The original plan, let's go back, see some of our old friends who we reached on the first missionary journey, see how they're doing. They did that, and then they began to just seek the will of the Lord. Lord, where would you have us to go? And they tried a few places, and they all got shut down. And Paul had that vision from the man in Macedonia. said, come on over here, across the sea, come to us and minister to us. And Paul did that. He went to Philippi, and a church was born. And then he left Philippi, and he went to... Uh, Thessalonica and a church was born he went to Berea and a church was born he went to Athens and was able to influence some people he went to Corinth and a church was born churches that themselves would become these reproducing communities advancing the gospel both within their cities and even outside of their cities and so when Paul came to Corinth there wasn't a single Christian there There is some debate as to whether Priscilla and Aquila had believed yet or not. 
let's just say there, there was no more than three Christians there. And it was one of the most debauched of all cities of the ancient Greek-speaking world, immoral cities. And when he left, there were literally hundreds of Christians, committed, devoted, faithful men and women, delivered from their sins that once bound, bound them, who now sought to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ as they walked in their lives in purity and in righteousness. And that's the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thank God, Paul didn't give up early. But that he continued to minister, and he continued to minister, and he continued to minister, and lives began to be changed. I don't know all of you. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know where you're at. But I do know this, that the same Jesus Christ that changed those lives in very radical ways can do the same thing in your life. And a lot of us here, nice American people, on the outside, maybe our lives look pretty good. Uh, you probably don't have a lot of changing to do. But every one of us know that inside of us, there's a lot of change that needs to take place. Pride, arrogance, bitterness, unforgiveness, all of those things that nobody else knows and you can put the mask on and nobody else can see. Let me just say this word of hope to every one of us. Jesus Christ can change even that. And none of us need to remain in those particular places. And so you may have been living with it. I may have been living with it for years. This is just who I am. Jesus wants to change us from the inside out. Let him do that work within you. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Father, we do want to be different. Not from everybody else. We want to be different from ourselves. Lord, from the sin, from the selfishness, from the pride, from all those things that are just rooted into our being, Lord, that when we bring that into the light of Christ, they become exposed. And I imagine, Lord, for a lot of us here, we've been Christians maybe a long time. And those things have been exposed on multiple occasions by your grace. And we've put your voice off. Lord, I, I don't think you want us to do that any longer. But I think you want every one of us to get serious with you. And so, all right, Lord, I make myself available. Every inch of my being. Change me. Make me more like your son. Lord, that takes courage. It's painful. It's so much easier just to settle into who we are and to no longer move forward, to keep the chain attached, so to speak, so that we can't go any further. Lord, you've come to break the chain. You've come to set us free. You've come to have us walk in the newness of life. And that's what we desire. And to so bless your people as we get right with you. In Jesus' name, amen.